Gospels and open them, am I on here, to Matthew 18. We're small enough if it doesn't work. Oh, there it goes. There it goes. I always look to Heather. I don't know why. Is it working, Heather? Is it working? Yeah. I was uh, struck in the video that we watched, the Operation Christmas Child video, by two things. A lot, a lot of things were in there, but two things struck me. One is when that woman was getting baptized, uh, did you look at the water? They don't care. It, you know, we, we get so over-concerned. I, 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 and I was just thinking about when we baptize people, we've got to make sure the water is warm and, and chlorinated. And, you know, it's, 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 it's not about that. They don't care. They just want to become part of the community of God so, so desperately that they're willing to go under that. And they don't even see it. So that kind of struck me. The, other, the second thing that struck me was that wherever Christianity Sprouts wherever the gospel goes, and you saw the backwoods, back country, wherever it is, people don't have to be told to gather. They just kind of Christian instinctually start gathering and praising God. And that's interesting because uh, this whole chapter that we're about to embark on is about uh, the community of God, life together. Jesus is going to be teaching about how we do this life together. What does that look like? What are the marks of life together? And I, 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 uh, a couple of years ago, I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, we went through Bonhoeffer's book, A Life Together. And so I'm going to be pulling from that in the, in the weeks to come about how we are to be living life together, what it should look like. And, and I want to read a, a quote to you. Uh, from that book, uh, just leading off this study in chapter 18. Uh, so Bonhoeffer writes this. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. He will not only do harm to himself and to the community. Alone you stood before God when he called you. Alone you had to answer the call. Alone you had to struggle and pray. Alone you will die and give an account to God. You cannot escape yourself. But the reverse is true, he writes. Let him who, cannot, who is not in community be aware of being alone. Into community you were called. The call was not meant for you alone. In the community of the called, you bear your cross, you struggle, you pray. You are not alone, even in death. And on the last day, you will be only one member of a great congregation of Jesus Christ. He concludes by saying, if you scorn the fellowship of the brethren, you reject the call of Jesus Christ, and thus your solitude can only be hurtful to you. Now, you've got to remember that what Bonhoeffer was writing here, he was writing in the mid-1930s when, when the Nazi regime was closing the noose in on the church, restricting its gatherings, and, and it kind of heightened his awareness, his, his desperation, his maybe gave him a little clarity on the, the criticality of life together. You know, just like in that video, up in the hills of, of the Amazon, people are just drawn together. When the gospel converts people, they're drawn together. They do life together. 
Bonhoeffer writes about life together in the community. He calls it the extraordinary roses and lilies of the Christian life. And life together is what chapter 18 is all about. Life together. Here we have come to the the fourth of Jesus' six major teaching blocks in the book of Matthew. We've already covered three of them. The Sermon on the Mount, where he extrapolates on what it is to be a Christian. In chapter 10, he takes time with his disciples before sending them out on mission to, to detail out what life looks like on mission. And in chapter 13, we, we saw just recently how he sat down and he, he taught these seven beautiful parables on what, what is this kingdom of God going to look like? What, help, us under, help us to visualize that. And he gave seven parables of what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And now he's starting to really concentrate in Matthew, starting to concentrate on his disciples, and he's teaching them particularly going forward. And here he kind of pushes in and says, here's what life together should look like. That's the context of chapter 18, life together. He spends some extended teaching time about what the marks of living life together in community should be. And today and over the next two to three weeks, I'm going to be uh, talking about this, chapter 18. Today we're just going to look at one mark, and that's found in the first four verses of chapter 18. So if you look down at God's Word with me, here Matthew was inspired to write, at this time... At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst, in its midst and said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. John MacArthur describes chapter 18 as the single greatest discourse Jesus ever gave on the life among the redeemed people of the church. This chapter outlines five foundational principles or marks of what a community of faith living life together should look like, what a church should look like. And I thought I could get a couple in today, but I'm just going to focus on one the one that is here. And that is, life together should be defined by humility. Life together should be defined by humility. Shakespeare wrote in The Twelfth Night, Be not afraid of greatness. Some men are born great. Some achieve greatness. Some have greatness thrust upon them. Well, the disciples don't fit any of those categories. They just wanted greatness. They wanted to be great, and that is what they're asking here. If you look at verse 1, they're not asking just generically who is great. From Luke and Mark's parallel passages, we kind of fill this question out a little bit, and we find out that they were arguing amongst themselves who will be greatest. And they actually come to Jesus with that question. Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? 
These men wanted position. These men wanted prominence. These men wanted standing when God's kingdom was realized. And they were asking Jesus. They wanted positions over others when Jesus' kingdom comes. According to all accounts, Winston Churchill was pretty demanding. He was pretty impatient. And he was often rude. On one occasion, a servant was bold enough to stand up to Churchill and pointed out his rudeness in speaking to him. Well, replied the servant, you were rude to me. To which Churchill replied, yes, but I'm a great man. That's kind of the the tenor with which the disciples are coming to Jesus. Make us great. Give us position. When you come into your kingdom, we want to be the ones that, have, that are above others. And Jesus takes this opportunity to tell them God's kingdom, and to tell them again, by the way. He's been telling them this lesson, and this is a lesson that we need to hear over and over again. He, he takes this opportunity to, to teach them once again that the kingdom greatness is not measured by accomplishment but by character. It's the character that counts. Greatness is not about what you do, but about who you are. It's not about how high you rise, but how low you're willing to go. How low are you willing to go? Jesus is always pressing them. He's always pressing us. How low are you willing to go? The last shall be first and the first last. How low are you willing to go? Because God's kingdom is counterintuitive. It's counter flesh. It doesn't make sense. Humility is the defining mark of Christian community. So Jesus uses an object lesson. He comes and he puts a child in their midst. And he says, I tell you the truth, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now you have to recalibrate yourself in, in context here whenever in chapter 18 Jesus is talking about children or little ones, of which he says six times, he's talking about the Christian. He's not talking about children. He'll talk about them at another time, but he's talking about a Christian. And though there are many characteristics of a child, Jesus wants to highlight just one, and that one is humility. As Don Carson explains, he says, the child is the model in this context, not of innocence, faith, or purity, but humility and unconcern for social status. A disconcern for social status. Children, when they're really young, they're not concerned about the hierarchy. This is what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. Greatness in God's kingdom is measured differently than we think. It's an upside-down, counterintuitive kingdom. And he's just going to here reframe once again, the first shall be last and last first. Augustine wrote, Do you wish to be great? Do you desire to construct a vast and lofty fabric? Think first about the foundations of humility. The higher your structure is to be, the deeper its foundation. Do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. 
Do you want to plan a tower that will pierce the clouds? First, lay a thick foundation of humility. Let's ponder that in context of what Jesus is saying here for a moment. The disciples want to be great, right? They come to him. Who's greatest? Make us great. In a couple chapters, as a matter of fact, the, the mother of um, James and John is going to come and petition Jesus for, for them to sit on his right and left. They're still not going to get it. At the Last Supper, if you remember, they begin arguing once again about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. So they don't get it. And the point is that, that as, as Matthew is saying this over and over again, he's saying, we don't get it either. We don't get this principle. We say we do. We memorize scriptures that, that we think we do, but we're not getting it. Humility is the foundation, not only of your, of your faith, not only of community, but even before that, it's the foundation of Jesus even coming. Think about that. That's Christ's example. That's what we need to do whenever we are tempted towards greatness, is remember Christ's example. Just turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. And there, you see what Paul was inspired to write, starting in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Though he, Christ, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on the cross. Humility is the foundation of our faith, brothers and sisters. Our whole faith is founded on a humble action of the second person of the Godhead. The second person of the Godhead who... who didn't devoid himself of any of his divinity. He didn't willingly limit himself. What he did is he laid aside, as Charles Wesley said, laid aside his glory by. We sing that. He's laying his glory aside. He's saying, I'm choosing not to be glorified at this time. He humbled himself in the incarnation in the incarnation like this. Humbled himself in his suffering, wearing the crown of thorns that we deserve to wear. Taking the blows and the spitting that we deserve. He humbled himself in his death. Next time you're tempted to grab at greatness. In the body of Christ, next time you're, you're tempted to elevate yourself in any way, next time you're tempted to take credit for things, to demand a thank you, think of what Christ went through. Think about Christ. Also ponder how you entered 
the kingdom to begin with. Have you ever pondered that? We can ponder Christ and his humility, but ponder how you came into the kingdom. Each person's salvation story has to be littered with humility or else it's not a salvation at all. Think about it. You have to admit you're a sinner. Not a mistaker. Not an omitter. Not a misstepper. Not a white liar. But an egregious sinner. That's what you have to come to terms with. To even begin to understand the gospel. You have to repent of your sins. Who here has a hard time apologizing? I'm going to say show of hands. Who has a hard time apologizing? It's important to admit that, by the way. I have a hard time apologizing. Why? Because I don't like putting myself under. I don't like weakness. But to repent is necessarily to say, I'm weak. I'm wrong. Please forgive me. And that is required in your salvation story. Your salvation story, you have to admit you're helpless to save yourself. What a humble position. You're, you're, you're helpless to save yourself. Take the humility takes humility to read and agree with John 15:5 where Jesus says to his disciples apart from me you can do nothing it takes a lot of humility to say that it takes a lot of humility to agree with John 14:5 I am the way the truth and life nobody comes to the father except through me it takes a lot of humility to admit that to agree with that. It takes a lot of humility to sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I bring nothing to the table. That brings us to another humble entry mark of your and my salvation. And that is you have to admit you're undeserving and unworthy. I mean, you know, a lot of people memorize Ephesians 2 8, 9, and 10. Yeah, it's foundational verse. By grace you are saved through faith in this, not of yourselves. Do you believe that? It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Do you believe that? You have to admit that. That's, that's the definition of grace, isn't it? God giving you something you don't deserve. I am unworthy. Do you ever walk down in town or wherever you are and you see someone whom your heart breaks for, who has less, maybe physically, maybe, maybe even, even a physical deformation, and you go, why not me? I don't deserve this. It's the same kind of undeserving that we go, why me, Lord? Why Blake? 
You can never boast about your salvation. You did not choose him. He chose you. Why me? You did not work the gospel out in your mind. You actually can't. The gospel is so counterintuitive to us. It takes the Holy Spirit to turn that light on. And if you've ever had the pleasure, the privilege of sharing the gospel and somebody coming to faith, you see that. You can give evidence to that. You go, oh my goodness, I've told this person this seven times and now they get it? I didn't, I'm not more winsome. I didn't use different words. It's the Holy Spirit. It's turning on the light. You didn't finally give in. You were elected before the foundations of the earth. And that all leads us to, I'm not deserving. I cannot boast of this. I'd love to be able to boast. I'd love to boast. I'd love to be great. Blake loves to be great. And maybe you do too. But the road to salvation is littered with humility. So, next time you're tempted like me to be great, to push others down to look better, to demand a thank you, to demand privilege, standing, position, think about how you came to Christ. And let it remind you. You have to be like a little child. Lastly, it takes humility to allow another to take the punishment that you deserve. Have you ever thought about that? Our salvation is littered with humility. But have you ever thought about that? It takes humility to allow another to take the punishment that you deserve. And this is what we must accept when we come to Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's hard enough to allow somebody else to pay your electric bill when you're a little short. I cannot tell you how many times, both inside and outside this congregation, that I've put an offer out there to somebody who's struggling a little bit, and, oh, no, I'm good. I'm okay. It's okay. And they've just told me they're not okay. We have trouble accepting people helping us. We have trouble being indebted, if you will. And yet, that's what you have to actually grab hold of and take into your heart to become a Christian. Christ died for me. He took all the punishment I deserve. That's why he went to the cross. We must allow Jesus to be crushed for our transgressions. You see, the entry point into the community of God is humility. That's the entry point. In late 2000, Indra Nooyi was appointed the first woman president and CEO of PepsiCo. She arrived home to share this big news with her family. And her mother was living with them at the time. She saw her mother as she came through the door and told her, I have some good news. Her mother looked at her and said, "Could hold off on the news. We need milk. Could you go out and get milk? And kept working. She went and got the milk and came back, she said, and she slammed the milk on the counter as she came home and said, I have big news. I was appointed the CEO of PepsiCo, 
and all you care about is this milk. Her mother looked at her for a moment and said, when you walk in that door, just leave that crown in the garage. Because here you're a wife, you're a daughter, you're a mother. Anything else, just leave it in the garage. That's what God requires of us when we come into the community of God. Leaving our crowns in the garage. And brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter who you are out there. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you have, how much money you make, what positions you have, what titles you have. In here, you're just another beggar telling another beggar where to get food. It's that simple. It doesn't matter what you have or own. Jesus says you must be like a child, unconcerned, unconcerned of social status, unconcerned with greatness. Leave your crowns in the garage. See, Jesus is saying that humility is not just the foundation, but it's the walls and the roof of the house of God. Humility is everything. One translation puts our verse, unless you change and become like children. That change from jockeying for, from position to humility should be evident in our body. That's the mark of a church, of life together, is humility. And it comes out in various ways. And I want to I share various ways that humility comes out in the body of Christ. And the first one is in thankfulness. Humility is shown in thankfulness. Writing to the to the Thessalonian church, remember these letters are written to churches, so you know, we tend to read our Bibles and then personalize everything. But these are written to churches. That's the context. Paul writes this to the church of Thessalonica. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Thankfulness is really a great indicator of your humility. Have you ever thought about that? Just pause for a moment. If a person that knew you well were asked, is so-and-so a thankful person? You know, what would they say? Because thankfulness is, is an indicator of your humility. Because we're naturally, what we naturally wear is, is the crown of entitlement. I'm entitled to these things. And if I don't get them, I get angry. We think we're owed. We think we deserve. Tim Keller notes, the presumption of spiritual entitlement dooms its bearer to a life of confusion when things go wrong. And life and ministry always go wrong. Always go wrong. Church life always goes wonky. Your life always goes left when you want to go right. So a church should be defined by thankfulness, regardless of their circumstances. 
Second mark, humility is seen in a church when people think better of others than themselves. When you think better of others than yourselves. In Philippians, again, writing to the Philippian church, these gathered believers, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. Boy, this is one our flesh just wars against, doesn't it? (laughs) How can I consider... This person and that person and then that person better than myself. Samuel Johnson wrote, The true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. How do you treat those people in the body? Naturally, we want to wear the crown of superiority. That's just natural. I'm better than so-and-so. We just naturally do that. We never say that, but we think that. Just like the disciples, we want our way in church. We consider others, our needs, our wants, our desires first. Our opinion is, of course, preeminent. I've thought this through. I think about this all the time. I've told the elders this. I tell other pastors this, too, when I have an opportunity. You know, I, you actually have, have given me the, the ability by calling me as your pastor to spend extensive hours thinking through things, praying through things, right? Which direction, Lord? Strategically thinking. You've given me that, and I, I'm so grateful for that. The downside of that is I think I know what's best for us. You don't understand. I've thought about this already. Oh, yeah, you're bringing that I thought about that already. Oh, you, this objection? I thought about that already. I think I know. I've got to learn to leave that crown in the garage. Humility is seen in a church when it rejoices in the triumphs of others. When That's another... Another blossom of humility in life together. When we rejoice in the triumphs of others. Paul writes to the church in Rome, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. A humble heart takes its eyes off itself. My mom used to tell me, Blake, stop navel-gazing. You know, she, she used to get more graphic, but I won't. Yeah, I will. Stop picking at the lint out of your navel. And that's what we do. We get preoccupied with ourselves. Humble heart takes its eyes off itself and places them on others. Do you rejoice when a brother grows and you're stuck? Do you rejoice when another girl gets married and you're not? Do you rejoice when a friend gets an A and you get a C? Do you rejoice when another fisherman has a huge catch and you don't? Do you rejoice? Can you rejoice when other marriages are flourishing and yours seemingly isn't? Here's a litmus test for our test for our church. Here's a litmus test for us as a church. Can we truly rejoice when another church is growing, and we're not. (laughs) Maybe that's one for me, but it's one for us. 
The gospel teaches us to leave our self-centered crown in the garage. The beautiful flower of humility is seen another way in a a church, and that is when unity flourishes. Humility pops out through and is visible when unity is flourishing. Again, writing to the church at Ephesus, not to an individual person. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You know, Paul loved Ephesus. He spent a couple years pastoring that church. He loved the people. He loved them so much that on his way to his death in, in Jerusalem, eventual death, he, he stopped by Ephesus and called the elders to him and gave them some final instructions in, in Acts chapter 20, and, and they cried together. He loved Ephesus. And so he was imploring them here, make every effort, effort, to keep the bond and the unity peace. We naturally want our personal preference in church, don't we? We we just we think it's the right thing. Whether it's the color of the carpet to the color of the walls to what we do and don't do with our money. How youth groups should run, what flowers we should plant outside. I mean the list is endless. We just we just think that that's the best way. Unity flourishes when we set aside our personal preferences. When we set them aside. So the, the kind of the, the other half of the coin to consider others better than yourself. Setting aside your personal preferences. Doesn't mean that you can't have a voice. Just mean you don't insist on it. Humility is seen in a church when forgiveness reigns. I'm not going to spend time on this because Jesus will in just a, a couple of verses with when he tells the parable of the wicked servant who goes out and chokes the one who owes us a dime, him a dime when he has just been forgiven $100,000. Humility is seen in a church when encouragement is the culture. That's another bloom of, of humility within the body of Christ. To the Hebrew believers was written, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Encourage one another daily. Just pause for a moment. Did you encourage, and I don't mean this in a, in a condemning way, but, but just as, a, again, helping us to think through our, our life together. Was there any encouragement that went on before the service today? Did you encourage anybody? It's not to say that you have to do it every, every time like that, but, but just we, it should be a part of our culture because humility should be part of who we are. And the bloom of encouragement is a sure sign of humility. Part of the spirit of greatness, you know, that you want to be great, part of that spirit is you want to be stroked, right? You, you want people to tell you how good you are. That's part of the spirit of greatness. It's kind of like, you know, the dog coming up and nudging your hand and putting your hand on their head so that you can stroke them. That's kind of the spirit of greatness. But the gospel changes us to be encouragers. 
It nudges us to move our hand towards others. It nudges us to be a community that proactively looks for opportunities to encourage. To look at a person and say, what is half full about that person? To look at a brother and sister in church and say, how are they encouraging to me? Humility is seen in a church when we serve one another. It's another bloom of humility. Paul writes to the Galatian believers, For you were called to freedom, brother, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The disciples ask their question from a position of being served. Who's the greatest? Put us on your left and right. Yet the core of the gospel is serving others, isn't it? When Jesus was asked one time about this, he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the core of the gospel is serving. Do you look for ways to serve each other? Do you look proactively look for ways to give your lives away, your time away in service to others in our community? It's a lot of opportunity. So I'd like to leave you with a couple questions, a couple maybe diagnostic questions, a couple questions maybe to talk about at lunch. This would be a great lunch question. How are we doing living life together where humility is concerned? Talk about it. It's healthy to examine ourselves. Is humility an attribute that defines Southwest Harbor Congregational Church? It's a great question. How does our church stack up against Jesus' teaching on humility here? Let's push in. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking my feeble efforts and using them, I pray, for your good and your glory in people's hearts to change us as a people, as a particular people that we call Southwest Harbor Congregational Church. Change us each person individually, so that we're a community that does actually manifest you, that the people can look at our life together and see your character, and particularly, Lord, on this day, your character of humility. In Jesus' name, amen.